Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Meathead Hippie. It's so good to be back every Wednesday. I just missed you all. What I miss the most is really these conversations. I've um, filmed a couple, and I always wait to film the intro so that everything's relevant because God knows that everything in my life changes hour to hour. (laughs) Uh, But I just, you know, talking to Dr. Mike T. Nelson, somebody that I've really loved listening to, he really excels in explaining hard concepts, especially when it comes to being a fat burner or being a sugar burner and metabolic flexibility and how to know if you are somebody that burns fat well. How do you know if you are into the fat burning state? And I see this all the time with clients is they you know, are eating quote keto and they are really high fat and really low carb or they're cutting sugar. But even after two weeks and three weeks, they still go crazy when they don't eat and they feel hangry and they have all those um, roller coaster energy rides that come with just depending on sugar and protein for fuel. And it's not their fault. So what is that? And how do we learn how to get into that place where we can burn easily sugar and fat, um, or I should say carbohydrates and fat for fuel. And so he just is a wonderful guest to have. We got really nerdy. It started off kind of weird with a lot of cadaver talk, which if you've listened listened to my podcast with um, Mark Drobnik, which the audio is total shit, and I'm so sorry about it because he is an incredible guest, and I will definitely have him back on. And I hope you guys have noticed that the audio improved slightly. I did invest in a little bit better equipment, and I know that was my biggest comment um, feedback, and it's so true. I hope that um, it was my own equipment's fault, so I hope that it is sounding a little bit better. And I have some great people on my team helping me do that. So thank you, Jerry. Woo woo. One of the things I know I did last week was this kind of emotional, empathetic um, monologue, which if you guys liked it, I really appreciate you telling me that. That meant a lot. So thank you. I was thinking this week, just kind of the topic of the week and something that probably all of us struggle with is something that actually I learned from uh, listening to a episode of Anthony Bourdain. He is one of my favorites. He, you know, parts unknown and he was in Uruguay and I can't remember how the conversation conversation started, but Bradford like tapped me and was like, see, and I was like, wait, what did he say? And we re- rewinded it. And it said, you know, with those happy moments, I think so many times people think of happiness as like the state of being. And there's few people like my mom where, It is a state of being, but I have found that there's so much I want in this life and so many places I have yet to go to and so many places I want my businesses to go to and so many projects and things that are like inside of me that aren't out. And if they're not out and they're not perfect and they're not done, I can't be happy. How, how does happiness exist in that place? And I know that's a really dramatic statement to say, because I think, you know, I'm not saying I'm unhappy with what I've put out there, but I know it's 10% of what I will, you know, I hope it's less than 10% of what I will eventually be putting out into the world and whatever the way that means and whatever the way the universe has for me. So it's so hard for me to take those moments and just be content and be present. I just, I, to me, that's settling and being comfortable and everyone struggles with getting out of their comfort zones. And I'm the nut job that struggles staying in one because to me, comfort equals I'm done. I'm settled. I 
this is it. And so I don't really know the point of this. This isn't me reading. It's just me kind of trying to get people to understand my brain. And if you are like this, I totally understand it. It's it's okay to be a little batshit crazy. And if you're not sure what you're doing in life and you're not sure if you're actually, you know, doing things for the better, I don't know, like don't overthink it. You are going to have those massive moments of, I'm happy and I can do this. And, and I just, it felt really good to hear Anthony Bourdain say that. I don't know why, that it's not, you know, just those few moments a week, you're doing pretty good. (laughs) Um, I just hope you love Mike T. Nelson because I know I did. I just, what a stud. We're going to get nerdy and you guys are going to love it. It's a total meathead podcast. Um, And I'm just honored to have him on the show. And next week we have a total hippie podcast with somebody that I was introduced to by Dr. Rachel, who's been on my podcast a couple times, current events. So just so you guys know, I have MFIT challenge always 21 days, $21 version one, version two, perfect to start. You can start your own date. So whenever you want to start, go, go pick a date and jump in. Um, we are really ramping up some corporate wellness. So if you're in Denver and you have a corporation or a business or a company that just needs to learn about real food, you know what I'm saying? Maybe some struggle busting in the kitchen area. I love helping companies in any capacity. If you guys um, are interested, go to the website, elevateyourcompany.com. I just have really enjoyed that. That's been some happy moments for sure. And then uh, update on the gym. I have no update, so um, you'll be the first to know. I think the only other big thing to talk to you about the event, I have a couple events. Next Tuesday, I'm going to be a guest in Denver for Women Who Start Up. I'm going to be talking about everything that's going on, and I love Lizelle from Women Who Start Up, so that'll be next Tuesday on, um, I think it starts at 7, and it's at Women in Kind, which is a co-working space just for women. And then on Memorial Day, the 28th, I will be hosting a MPAC workout at Holiday Brewing. So the only gluten-free, designated gluten-free beer brewery in Colorado. I love their beer. They don't use one of those enzymes that remove gluten from the beer, like omission or something else. They actually are like a fully gluten-free brewery. So it's the best beer in the world. I, If you haven't tried it, meet me there on the 28th, 10 a.m., we're going to do a workout and then drink some beer. All right. Enjoy the enjoy the podcast. <laughs> I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. Dr. Mike T. Nelson, you are the perfect guest for Meathead Hippie. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for being here. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, we, it was so fun. We were on a panel together at Paleo yeah. FX. That was a fun panel. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was yeah, it was fun. It was very interesting. It's one of those going into, you're like, I have no idea how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So we were on a panel called Fitness for the Rest of Us, and we had probably every type of person on stage, uh, ranging from body weight only to 
you know, even Paul Check, and it just was a really, a really good conversation. But you yourself, I mean, you are so good. You're dialed into the science behind what enhances and what helps with human performance in in so many different ways, whether it's supplements and recovery and getting getting jacked and strong. And so I just am really excited for my own benefit. And also I know this is going to be so great for all my other fellow meathead hippies out there of just really understanding the body at a, at a deeper level. And I'd love to start with just your own story. Like what I feel like, you know, you are definitely breathing the message because you love it. Like you can tell this is something you really, really love. Have you always been into the human body and what led you to the PhD that you have? And how did this journey start for you? Yeah, I think it's interesting as you're going through the journey, you never really know the things that lead to the next thing. But when you look back on it, you're like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably from a very young age, the, the two things that have shaped a lot of what I do is I was actually born with a atrial septal defect. So for people listening, your heart has four chambers, top are the atrium, the bottom are the ventricle. And before you're born, there's actually a hole in the atrium and a hole in the ventricle because you're not breathing air through your lungs. Your heart is beating, but it's just pumping blood around in a circle. And as soon as you're born, obviously you have to breathe air, and those holes normally close up. And in my case, the top chamber, the atrial hole, never closed up. So by the time I was like four, four and a half, I had just massive heart failure. Like my heart was the size of uh, someone who was 18 even though I was four and a half at the time. And it was fortunate that I lived in the Twin Cities at the time, that's where my parents are from, and Children's Hospital at the University of Minnesota was one of only about like four centers in the U.S. that would operate, this is 1978, would do open heart surgery on kids because of you know, very high risk and the technology isn't what it is now. Uh, so luckily they went in, uh, the pediatric cardiologist who we had was awesome, uh, he actually kind of pushed the surgeons to operate sooner than later because they did imaging, uh, but the imaging back then isn't you know nearly as good. Mm-hmm. And he said, based on the symptoms, you know we should do something sooner than later. And that actually turned out to be the right call when they got in there. The hole was much bigger than they thought. So I had ten days of being in the hospital, and it's interesting that I don't remember a lot from around that time, what but age, I remember a lot about the procedure. I was four and a half. Oh my gosh, that's so young. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember going to the hospital. I remember you know, playing with the kids next to me. I remember going into surgery. I remember waking up and being tied down in bed because I had so many, you know, tubes. I had chest tubes, IVs. And then, you know, they don't want you to you know, move around and accidentally rip one out. And I thought, oh my God, this is weird. And once I remember I was able to get right use of my right arm. And I remember looking between my fingers and I'm like, there's dirt. <laughs> it probably wasn't dirt, but it was something else, yeah. you know, and you're just uh, weird items. So fast forward, you know, going into high school, I thought physiology was interesting, especially cardiac physiology. I did a, an undergrad as a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science. Uh, where I was at at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, it was one of the very rare places as an undergrad that she was not in like physical therapy or exercise phys, you could take anatomy and physiology and actually work on actual cadavers. So we had, you know, full human cadavers that we got new actually each quarter, uh, which even now is still very rare for an undergrad program. And I just thought that was the greatest class. I just, 
at the time just took it for fun. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's on my list. There's a, a one in Arizona. Um, I forget what yes. it's called. You did it. Yes. Twice now. Oh, Tom Myers. That's amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to Talk do that. Garcia. Yeah, it's in Boulder, Colorado next year in January. We, you so. told me that, and I just was so thrilled yeah. because it's definitely, I think it's just something that it's so, I, even when I was, you know, on a trip, there's all these body exhibits, and we have in our head this, like, cartoon. Nope, you dropped out there for a sec. Oh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you now. It's crazy because we have this cartoon persona of what the muscle is and what organs are and how different they are from person to person. I just feel like if I'm going to talk about it, I need to understand it and see it. Yes. Yeah. And, and that course is amazing because the tissue is not embalmed. So for people listening, they've heard of like, you know, formaldehyde or formalin. It's a protein fixative. And they use it because they take the blood out, they replace it with the solution, and it freezes all the proteins or all the structures in place. So as you go through and you have more people handling the tissue, it you know doesn't smell as bad. The, the formalin has a weird smell to it, but it doesn't smell like decomposing tissue. Um, and it stays for a long period of time. The downside of that is that a lot of the color washes away, the fascia or the connective tissue literally kind of like disappears. And you get what I learned is kind of a, I wouldn't say a false image, but it's a representation that's not quite as accurate as I was told, or at least I was thought I knew. And when you do fresh tissue, Obviously, all the blood and everything is there, so it's a limited time. You know, we worked with the cadavers there for five days. But you get to see all the color. You get to see all the blood. You can see all the fascia. You can see the cross striations. You can uh, see the fat tissue. And to me, that was much more useful and a much better picture of what was actually going on. That's interesting you say that because I feel like with fascia, it's only a more recent conversation with people popping up with fascial stretching technique and yeah. therapy because it, but that makes sense if they are not seeing it in typical labs or is, I mean, I don't, I never saw it in a book. I mean, it was very much like the next level of understanding that fascia was really what connected your ankle to your shoulder and like that whole system. So that's, I wonder if that's why just simply because it's not shown and even like the simple studies. I don't know. Huh. That's kind of my theory also. It's not just my theory, but so one of the questions I have when I, I talk with people who do a lot of biomechanics and body work is, you know, have you taken a dissection course? And most of the time, I'm like, oh, yeah, I took a lot of anatomy and physiology. And I'm like, well, was it uh, kind of the general sort of fixed version or was it fresh tissue? And most of the time, the people who are not as interested in fascia, again, anecdotal, most of the time they did more fixed tissue work. And that was, you know, up until three years ago, that was that was totally me too. I was teaching anatomy and physiology for a while. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I understand fascia, it's interesting, but yeah, it's just not that important, mm -hmm. right? Because unconsciously my model is looking at it and going, well, I don't remember seeing a lot of fascia. And then I did the fresh tissue thing for the first time three years ago with Tom Myers and Arizona and Todd Garcia. And I'm like, holy crap, it really is everywhere. Oh my gosh, it does look really different. Um, so I think if you study and you kind of don't have that right mental model, I think it's not that people are trying to dismiss it. Um, I think it's easier to dismiss because you don't see it as much. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there's just not as much research on it either. You know, even though it's been there for a while and you can find some old research on it, um, but it hasn't been studied nearly as much as muscle and other systems of the body. 
Well, talk, let's just define fascia for people that are not familiar with it because I've experienced it, but I still do have a hard time explaining it because I, it was like really the first time that I understood it and how connected it was to ultimately all my mechanics was actually getting stretched in a very, active, oh, sure. in that active way where I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I just got the shit kicked out of me because I, <laughs> I, I, all I did was stretch and it was just so active and so different than anything I had experienced. And then it just opened up the door of like, okay, what does this fashion even do? How does it hold so much? You know, all of the stuff that's going on. I just was so impressed by how effective it was. Can you help define what fascia is and why people should care? Yeah, I think of fascia as just sort of bands or sheets of connective tissue. Because um, at the end of the day, it is very much a uh, connective tissue. But a lot of times when we say connective tissue, people go, oh, you mean like ligaments and tendons? Because that's more the, the classic way it's taught. And what you find is that fascia goes pretty much everywhere in the body and kind of helps reinforce a lot of the other structures, right? So if we take an example like the quadriceps muscle. You're like, okay, well, we know that there's, you know, just by the name, there's four different parts of the muscle. But what's probably not appreciated as much is because of the way they attach, they actually kind of slide over each other. And in between the muscle, there's a layer of fascia or, you know, connective tissue, but it's in more of a sheet type structure. It's not just that the ligaments and the tendons. And so the first time we did this dissection course, we had a group there that cut a little window in the cadaver, probably about a four by four inch window. And they looked at the main top part of the quad, so the rectus femoris, which goes over the knee. It's kind of what your kneecap floats in. And then it actually crosses all the way up onto the other side of the pelvis. So the fancy word is what they call a biarticulate muscle. It attaches over two different joints. And then on the side, they put another little pin, a marker, in the basically the fascial connection or the TFL, this big thick band of connective tissue along the side of your leg. So people are used to rolling on a foam roller on their side. That's usually the, the thing that's getting compressed. And they put another one on the muscle that's underneath the rectus femoris, so one of the deeper quad muscles that don't actually cross the hip. So the other three quad muscles only cross the knee. And they took the cadaver and they bent the knee all the way up and then they flexed the knee back and forth. And what you would see with the markers is that the rectus femoris, the muscle sliding underneath, would slide, at least in this cadaver, by about a good two to three inches. Which I, first time I saw that, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this makes no sense, right? Because you're taught that all the muscles work together, they kind of all serve the same function. And what you're seeing there is that they're actually sliding over each other. Hmm. And once I kind of saw that, I was like, oh, oh my. And then you look at, okay, there's the fascia, kind of this connective tissue, but it's in sheets between each one. So it's actually allowing this sort of sliding of one muscle over another muscle, um, which I, I think is very much kind of underappreciated. Yeah. Um, and the other part is origin and insertion, right? So if you take classic anatomy and physiology, okay, here's your origin, here's your insertion. And what you forget is that both ends can actually move. So the example I give students is if you go, like, okay, the hamstring, right? So the hamstring does what's classically called knee flexion. I bring my heel towards my butt. That's the function of the hamstring origin insertion. Cool. 
But now what happens if I'm standing and the part by the knee doesn't move? Right? What if I contract the hamstring, just to use as an isolation example, what happens? Well, the hamstring, the other end, is kind of up by the SI joint, so the back part of the pelvis, to use simple terms. And if you're contracting it, and the other muscles do this too, pelvis actually rotates back. Right? It goes into what's called a posterior pelvic tilt. There's other muscles like the abs and other muscles that are involved in that too. But I was never taught that part. No, true. Pretty much any class I ever me, took. Me either. I always it was just you sit too long. Uh, tight hip flexors. Yeah. Anterior pelvic tilt. Yep. <laughs> That's yep, so exactly. cool. And uh, then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. And then if you take that step one step further, which I got this from Ron Haraska, PRI. Oh, why are people's hamstrings tight a lot of the time? If you're living in that sort of anterior pelvic tilt, your hamstring is already being pre-stretched right? Because that back portion is being yanked up. Ooh, but if I go to stretch it from the other end, right, from the lower leg, it feels tight. Well, it is tight because it's been pre-stretched and you're trying to add more stretch to it again. And once I started looking at the body through just kind of that lens, I'm like, oh, oh my. And then you throw fascia on top of it and connections between the, the foot to your opposite jaw and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, before I forget, because I do think I, I we were just so casual about this, but did it ever I just am personally curious. Did it ever freak you out because they were so fresh of cadavers? And like, what's, I'm, I'm a little nervous for the bolder one because I think I'm really tough and then. I don't know. I feel like it might freak me out a little bit. Um, I think they do a very good job of giving a good introduction. And I mean, it is a little odd, you know, and I, I consider it more of a an honor than an oddity. Yeah. You know, these people gave their body to science. Obviously, they, they signed waivers when they were living um, to approve this process. And you know, you're very respectful, you know, of their donation and you keep all the tissue together. So once you're done, you know, that's that's sent back so they can you know, usually be cremated or whatever happens to them at that point. Um, but it is it is definitely kind of odd. I and mean, I've done it so much that I sometimes forget that other people haven't. And it's not a normal thing because <laughs> my wife will tell you that I will be at, you know, dinner parties and someone will ask about some biomechanics question, I'll be like, oh, you know, if you go and do your, your fresh tissue dissection, you're doing this or that, and you see the people sitting around the table start looking kind of funky, you're like, oh, that's right, this this isn't really normal. You probably should be <laughs> talking about this over dinner. <laughs> I know, but it's so, I mean, it's just, it's so cool because it's so, like when you talk about it, it makes sense, and you you do a good job explaining it, which is why you're so good at what you do. Are there anything that, like right now, or maybe something that just really surprised you that you love sharing that people just don't know about biomechanics of the body or something that you're right now currently nerding out about? Oh, man, it's never ending, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I got into more biomechanics and did a master's in mechanical engineering biomechanics, more just because at the time I wanted to go into the medical device industry, because I was told that, hey, you know, if you're good at engineering, you're good at biology, this is, you know, a way you can make money and have a living. And I didn't really think about training at that time. It was just something that was interesting to me. Um, you know, fast forward through a couple decades. And I mean, even now, I wish I could go back and have a different frame of reference that I have now that I didn't have then. 
right? So I tell students when I'm teaching that, okay, yes, you need to know origin insertion. Yes, you need to know the classic way of how everything is taught because to be honest, that's what we're still gonna test you on. But once you understand that, don't have that be the limiting factor, right? Just, just think real simply, okay, the muscle starts and ends here. These are the two connection points. Just get rid of origin insertion for now. And then what movement is that gonna create? All right, just really simple. And I think that will allow you to see other movements that you don't normally see. And then for me, like, especially probably like the past year or so, like uh, breathing has been like super interesting to me in terms of not so much the mechanics, but the, the role that it plays, you know, can we actually change breathing mechanics? Um, because if like the principles of how your body is wired, I got this from a Dr. Arkab at Z Health, but I took a bunch of classes from a while back, that the body is very much survival-based, right? It's going to do everything possible in order to survive. So a scale that you can kind of assemble in your brain in terms of priority then is, okay, so how long can we go without something? That'll kind of give us a rough hierarchy of, of what's important. You know, and you look up the stuff, like even like food. I think the world record for no food is like well over a year. Right. It's obviously medically assisted and, you know, supervised. Just don't go out and stop eating for a year. Oh uh, but a it's lot. quite a while. Right. Yeah. Um, water, you know, a couple days. You're definitely in the days range there. Breathing. I think David Blaine still has the, the record. I don't remember if it's assisted or unassisted at like 19 minutes, 35 seconds or something. Oh my but God. given the world record, you're down into minutes. Right. How long can the average person hold their breath? Eh, minute or two, maybe. Yeah. So you're you're very, very short. And if we know if you don't do that, bad stuff happens to you very, very fast. Mm -hmm. So breathing, then I would argue, is you know, number one on the survival list of things you absolutely have to do. And then if that's the case, you probably have a fair amount of compensations with breathing. Because your body, if it's survival based, has to figure out how to breathe. You know, you see like COPD patients or uh, heart failure patients that are sitting in bed with three pillows because their lungs are feeling full of fluid because their heart is in such poor shape and they're still breathing. It's not the most efficient thing, but their body is still trying to figure out a way in order to get it done. So if you take that and you flip it, okay, so maybe you could argue doing some breathing interventions to get breathing to be a more efficient process should have a, a fair amount of a high payoff in terms of the time invested. Hmm. Man, that's so yeah. good at th like the way you explained it because you have you have to survive, right? And I am terrible. Uh, I am terrible at holding my breath. It's like embarrassing how, <laughs> how bad I am. I just I hate it. I hate it more than anything. And then I actually watched a documentary about free divers and Yeah, fascinating. They, oh my God. They're just they're just fearless. They're just so fearless how they can just I mean, it's up to four minutes or something ridiculous. Maybe even be. Long, yeah. Oh, and it's just insane to me because I mean, when you're underwater, it's different if you're just like holding your breath because you can always have air, but like there, there's no option, which is probably why they're good at it. Right. They have to be, but, um, yeah, that's it. So with breathing, do you focus on like the ribs and the muscles that are around it, the structure that's around your diaphragm and around your lungs, or do you just focus on actually doing it in a way that is just conscious, like conscious breathing and making sure you you are breathing 
throughout the day or do you focus on getting people to move their rib cage a little bit more and their thoracic spine a little bit more? Yeah, I would say now probably both. And I would say more trying to change this, the structure, which is in quotes, which is probably more through neurology. Um, so like years ago, once I learned this, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be great. I'm going to be a trainer and I'm going to work on breathing. This was like eight years ago and this is going to be great. So I'm going to have clients come in. Ooh, I know a little bit about you know breathing mechanics. I had taken a, a class on an advanced pulmonary mechanics, which is funny because me and this other guy would sit in class and we'd just harass the professor all day about, okay, so what happens if the guy's up on Mount Everest and what happens if he's a free diver, right? Because those are like the two you know, extremes, polar ends yeah. of the spectrum, the extremes. And what I fast realized with clients was, Man, I tried all sorts of interventions and it didn't seem to do anything. And I'm like, huh. And what I ended up getting to was sort of kind of better breathing mechanics, sort of kind of belly breathing. And I had to have clients and myself do it for probably 15 to 20 minutes in the morning and at night for about eight weeks before I could really make any difference. Um, which even at that amount is still to me pretty fascinating because yeah. most people take, you know, 20, 22,000 breaths a day. So you're kind of competing with quote unquote good reps versus bad reps, right? And so no matter how much time you do, you're kind of competing against that neurologic thing. Uh, so fast forward over time, I'm like, okay, so what other principles do we think the body is operating on? And the second one I'd say is probably efficiency. Right? The body is going to do pretty much whatever it can in order to be as efficient as possible. Now, there may not be a, a gross efficiency, right? So if you go to the, the mall or especially airports, I know you travel a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Man, there's a lot of people who are not moving very efficiently as a whole group. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I would argue for their body, their structure, their nervous system, their body is moving as efficiently as it can. Even though that as we grade it would not look very good. So I'm like, okay, if that's true, I just need to make better breathing more efficient. And I think the body will switch to do that as a better pathway. So tried a whole bunch of stuff. What I do primarily now is some stuff through RPR, uh, Reflexive Performance Reset. And it's doing, and people can do this on themselves, working on a lot of, we're back to the, the fascial area on the sternum, the front part over the ribs, uh, the bottom part of the rib cage. Uh, some work, uh, visceral work, so around the gut. And that's been, I think, so far the most effective. And even then, when you're doing hands-on stuff, which you can do on yourself, you're primarily looking for more of the neurologic response. I don't really think you're making massive mechanical differences to the tissue through sheer force. Um, but you're kind of interacting with the body and the nervous system to get breathing to be a little bit more efficient. And what I've noticed is that without cueing people, without having them do a drill, without having them do anything else, a lot of times their breathing just switches on its own, right? Creating more space in the ribs, you know, getting visceral work so that the diaphragm, when it's going up and down, the viscera can slide up and down and move a little bit. Um, so that's what I've been doing now. And I, I think there's drills, like uh, PRI has a lot of great stuff that they do with uh, breathing. And I think there's many ways you can get at it. But I think the conscious kind of override method, as I would call it, is just, it's not super effective, right? You see the same thing with posture. I've had, you know, pretty horrible posture through most of my life through 
scoliosis scars, some funky eye stuff, and a bunch of other things. I never understood that, okay, I can pull myself into a quote-unquote better posture. I just did it. But it won't, <laughs> but it won't stay. Yeah, it doesn't. Right? Yes, correct. It's like, well, why is that? I think it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever posture you're in now is, is kind of the most efficient place for your body to hang out, which is the right, extension of the adaptation of what your environment is and a bunch of other stuff. So trying to consciously override that, I don't think really sticks very long because you didn't change the base of how the systems operate, right? You're just trying to give it a cue or try to move it into this other place that probably isn't that efficient. So as soon as you forget, right, you're going to go back to what your unconscious programming is. And there's only so often that you can be consciously thinking of your posture. I mean, when you're, I mean, I think all the time, like the amount of time will never, and you just, it's like decision fatigue, right? You just get exhausted thinking about it. You're just over it. And then I think it actually causes people to be less likely to make simple decisions. So if they're focusing, I want to have better posture, better posture, but it's not getting any better and effort. And I really do think it's like this domino effect of I'm trying so hard and I don't see any changes. And it's, I've consciously made an effort and it took energy and I have less energy to do better decisions, even as like, you know, picking an RX bar over a cookie. I just think it connects in so many different ways. (laughs) It's so interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the people I've worked with who have a harder time to make change are people who've trained themselves to consciously move or have their posture or breathing be better. But that takes a lot of conscious effort. And like you said, I think they can get there. But man, for all the things your brain can do, boy, that just seems like kind of a a waste of space a little bit. Yes, yes. (laughs) There's certain things that should be, you know, kind of an, an unconscious for a reason, right? We just want them to be uh, competent and unconscious, you know, breathing, walking, things like that are, they're designed to be autonomous for a good reason. Uh-huh. Um, but it's just changing that autonomous program is what we want to do so that we don't have to use, you know, a lot of our brain and prefrontal cortex and that kind of stuff to think about things that should be very, very simple. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned visceral. I've discussed it a little bit with Dr. Missy on the podcast. If you guys are interested, it's just such a unique way of our organs have to move just like our muscles have to move. And, yeah. and people don't realize that because no one's really talking about it. And so it's good to understand that visceral manipulation or visceral motility. I Do you work with that quite a bit? Um, I do. Um, yeah. Just because I... I found that it was useful. I just found that, and it was funny. So at the last time I did the the course with Tom Myers, I'm like, I said, hey, Tom, I said, I, I just got to ask you this question because telling a lot of my hardcore biomechanics friends that, you know, you need better visceral movement. They look at you like you're a two-headed space alien, you know, because it's, <laughs> it's not anything that, that they're real taught and it, it's not in a lot of the more classic biomechanics type stuff. Um, Tom's super nice, super smart guy. He's been doing, you know, massage body work stuff for, you know, four decades or longer. And I said, Hey, so do you think that to get better breathing mechanics, we should work on the viscera at some point so that it can slide up and down to, to better pair with the diaphragm. And he kind of gives me this, you know, well, duh sort of look and very nicely and politely says, yes. And then just kind of walks off. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I, 
just just had to ask. I kind of thought so, but <laughs> I love it. Um, before we leave the topic of breathing, have you ever tried? And this terrifies me because again, again, I cannot hold my breath for shit. Uh, tape breathing or putting tape on your mouth? You know, I it's on my list of stuff to try. I first heard about it two years ago. I did a retreat in Costa Rica. And some guys were, you know, we get down there and we're, you know, I got three hours on the, the van to get out there. And they were talking about taping their mouth at night. And, you know, the vision that I get is, is someone coming up to you with duct tape, you know, and taping, you know, like they're going to abduct you or something. And I'm thinking from a mechanic standpoint, I gotcha. But holy crap, that seems like uh, a very extreme intervention. And then they explained it to me. It's no, it's just a very you know, small, fine piece of tape. So you can override it, right? You can open your mouth and you're not going to die in the middle of your sleep or anything. Um, I think it can be useful as a cue. But again, I think it goes back to changing the breathing mechanics first mm -hmm. and then using different interventions like that to see where you're at. Because um, it's, it's just like training, right? You don't want to, I tell coaches that you rig the system in favor of your client. Right, figure out where you can find the most leverage and then do that first. Because most sadly, most people who are training have had a lot of very poor reps in the past. They just haven't been successful with body count, weight loss, strength, whatever it is. And the last thing I want to do is give them something that they're gonna feel like they keep failing over and yeah. over. Right. Because now I'm neuroplastically in embedding the wrong thing, like the thing I'm trying to work against. So I think once you can allow them to do better breathing through their nose, better breathing mechanics, I think that that may be useful at that point. But I'm not convinced yet that just saying, oh, you're a mouth breather, we'll just tape your mouth at night. <laughs> uh, that. I don't know. That, that that doesn't seem like the best route. <laughs> I know. I definitely need to try it too. And maybe just like an hour just to see if I can. But I, I agree. I'm on the same boat as you. I did a podcast with, his, have you heard of um, Dr. Stephen Lynn? He's a dentist that just, uh -uh. he just is all about like the Weston A. Price kind of. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah you know, the way that the denture or not dentures, but our structure formation and stuff. Yeah. And so cavities and braces and the reason more and more are happening are just because of, you know, basic deficiencies, nutrient deficiencies. And so when he talked about it, I was like, Oh no, but I had to ask if you had, and you make me feel better about not trying it yet. <laughs> so I'm glad yeah. we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. It's, what I do do is I will have some clients who I want to do more moderate, old school, aerobic base building cardio that I'll put a heart rate monitor on them. And a lot of stuff I do is online. So one, send me your data. I want to see where you're at, right? Does your RPE, your rate of perceived exertion, match where your heart rate is? You know, because a lot of, especially more CrossFit athletes are like, oh, yeah, I did a recovery run today. I'm like, okay, show me your actual heart rate. Yeah. Well, it was like Ooh, 175. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not really recovery. Let's so talk then about actually, that. Yeah. I'll actually tell them to close their mouth. So oh. now you do your cardio, but you can only breathe through your nose. And they're like, what? And it's it's really hard at first. I mean, that's what I'm, I'm still working on. So what did you do, right? You automatically limited their how high of an excursion they can go um, just by doing that too. So it's another little trick to get them to force them into more moderate type zones. Oh, I love this. Let's talk about this. What's the highest heart rate that you would allow for like a specific recovery, quote unquote, recovery rest day? Yeah, it, 
It really, you know, it's just kind of cop out, but it depends on the individual. You know, some people genetically have really high heart rates. So the old school 220 minus your age for your max heart rate, I believe like the standard deviation on that's like plus or minus 17. It's like 12 or 17. It's it's pretty high. Yeah. So what I tell people is, okay, put a heart rate monitor on. They're very inexpensive now. Some of the watches are not the best under high exertion. So get the old school, you know, strap that you wear. I know it's uncomfortable. And then do whatever max session it is and let me know what your actual max was. I don't care what your predicted was. I want to know what can you actually get to. And that's the number we're going to use for the calculations. So we know that it's more accurate. Um, once you have that, or if you don't have that, the kind of old school Phil Moffatone 180 minus your age will get most people relatively close. You know, so I'm 43. So 180 minus 43, I'm going to be at what 137. So that's lower than what most people think that it is. Got it. Um, yeah. I mean, there's exceptions to that. I mean, some athletes can run at super high heart rates and be fine. So their recovery work is going to be um, less, especially if their resting heart rate is really low. Um, so it varies, but I find the 180 minus age as a as a top end on your recovery days is it gets you kind of in the ballpark. Okay, got it. And then for people, so I'm, I'm going to do this really fast just because I'm very curious. I don't think my, I have an Apple Watch and I don't think it gets my highest heart rate. It'll probably miss. So yeah. any of the optical sensors that you wear on your wrist right now, they're in the process of changing from a green light to a red light. But even then, like the ones that I've just tested, and there's research on this too, the high heart rates, they're not super accurate. So I tell people that, um, so I have a Garmin. And most of the watches will allow you to pair one of the chest straps directly to the watch. So you don't need to have your phone. You don't need to have a lot of other stuff. Um, but having the actual kind of like the, the polar or cardio sport or whatever, the actual strap that picks up the electrical activity is going to be much more accurate. Hmm. Let's talk about HRV, heart rate variability and recovery. Yeah. And this is just something I've never talked about. So I think this is going to be really good oh, for cool. my listeners and figuring out, okay, what is your average heartbeat when you wake up? And it's before you stand up, correct? When you check your heart rate, it has to be before you stand up or is it once you stand up in the morning? So there's, there's two methods you can do. One is just measuring uh, resting heart rate in the morning. Um, there used to be a test where you would compare uh, laying down or standing resting heart rate. Um, I found that resting heart rate in the morning, first thing, is relatively accurate-ish. Um, but you want to use some sort of device to record it. Uh, the watches, even if they're optical at rest, are relatively accurate from what I've seen. Um, having a heart rate strap works a little bit better. And you just measure it first thing in the morning. The next way is more accurate, is looking actually at heart rate variability. So when we look at heart rate, we can take an average, and that gives us some data. And then we can do different math to that, where we run what's called a variability analysis. We're looking at how much these beats change from one to the next. Not just the average, but this fine scale movement from one to the next. So if you were sitting at rest, and your heart rate's, let's say, 47, it may look like 47, 49.5, 46.5, 47.8. There's these oscillations that it moves around, but your average is 47. So those oscillations are what we're looking at in heart rate variability. The nice part is that gives us the next level down of information. 
So when we run heart rate variability, HRV, we can then see the status of our autonomic nervous system. So how much of that is on the parasympathetic side, which is like the brake of your car, right? So higher tone, you actually go slower. If I press hard on the brake, the car will slow down, or kind of the rest and digest. Uh, the sympathetic side is more like the gas pedal. As you're stressed, right, you're going to increase heart rate. So when we do HRV, we can get a number that tells us in that uh, parasympathetic to sympathetic side of the equation where we're at. Um, a lot of the apps, like I use the uh, iFleet app, will rate that on a 1 to 100 scale. So the higher the number, the more parasympathetic you are or kind of the more rest and recovered you are. And that gives us kind of a nice way of tracking stress. And what I found with clients is I started, I did this in the lab years ago. And as of about six years ago, we had apps where you could start to measure it daily at home, which made it much more useful. And a lot of clients are just kind of oblivious to how much stress they're under and don't really know how much that changes from one day to the next. So trying to give them some accountability and some way to measure it, right? The old Peter Drucker quote, what, what gets measured gets managed, right? So a lot of people are doing more lifestyle interventions for stress now, which is great, but people's perception of feeling less stressed is not always the greatest. So I can show them that, hey, okay, this day was a little bit better, this day was a little bit more stressed, and over time, they get a little bit better intuition and for performance of, let's say, athletics, the prediction capability is okay. Like endurance training, it's okay. Uh, strength and power from a prediction standpoint is not super good. Because hmm. for years, I get these crazy emails from people that are like, hey, I started doing my HRV and it was horrible today. And I went to the gym anyway and I set a PR. Ah, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what we know is that that's not going to happen every day, though. What I tell clients is that the HRV score is a pretty darn good aggregate of all the stress that's on your system at that point. Now, we all have some type of reserve, and yeah, you can go to the gym and possibly get a new PR, but you're sure as heck not going to do that tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Yeah, it's right? definitely or not sustainable. you're running a higher risk, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like my Jetta, I can take it and redline it. I'll go faster. But I'm also increasing the stress on the engine, increasing the risk of something bad happening too. That's that. That's a great point. Do you have a? You said your favorite app was for this. Which one do you use? Yeah. So the one I use for apps right now is called iFleet. So okay. instead of athlete, it's an I. And then I just started testing the Aura Ring also, which I was able to get one of the new ones at Paleo FX, which is pretty awesome. And I really like it so far. And that will do heart rate variability pretty accurately. I, missed, uh, partially because I totally of missed that. On the ring. Yeah. Tell me about it again. Sorry, I interrupted. That's right. No worries. It's uh, called the Aura Ring. Uh, O-U-R-A. And it's a ring, and it'll measure uh, movement, temperature, uh, heart rate, and it'll do HRV at night. Mm -hmm. So one of the downsides of HRV is that you have to get up in the morning, usually have it do seated. Put on the little chest strap and takes about you know, two to three minutes to do it. It's not horrible. It's not a whole lot of time. But for some people that are busy, it, it can be more of a pain in the butt factor. 
Um, so the aura ring will do it at night. I mean, so in the morning after you get up, you just uh, run the app and it'll tell you what it was. You don't really have to take time out to stop and get the measurement. So that's kind of nice and kind of eliminates the biggest thing that I have with HRV is a lot of times just compliance of, oh, the kids woke me up in the morning and I ran out and the dog had to go to the bathroom and, you know, something always seems to, to happen first thing in the morning. That's so, it's and it's good because I think it's so true what you said. We have no idea what our stress levels are because we so we just kind of like, you know, slap ourselves and here we go. Let's get through it. It's just kind of the survival technique that we all have, and we just keep going. And it's cool, but it also will always catch up with people and and, and in ways that people don't even realize. Yeah, and it, I think it's because your nervous system is so much comparative. Uh, so I live in Minnesota. Obviously, you live in Colorado where it gets a little cold. So if it's cold outside and you walk into your house, you're like, oh, man, yeah, it's so nice and warm in here. It could be you know, 61 degrees. <laughs> but if you're you're sitting in your house for six hours and haven't been outside, ah, it's 61 degrees in here. It's stupid cold, <laughs> yeah. right? Because there's nothing to compare it to over that period of time. Mm. So I think people who are very, very stressed, they just they don't know any different. Like their nervous system has never had that point where they weren't stressed. So they don't really know how stressed they are. Yeah. Because uh, I've had, you know, conversations with clients that I'm like, you sound pretty stressed. Like, nope, not stressed, not stressed. <laughs> Me not stressed, very, very not stressed, not stressed at all. And I'm like, that sounds very stressed. But to them, that's normal. That's their life. You know, that's that they call themselves stressed. Until you show them a number, in that case, their resting heart rate was 79 and their HRV was 43. Pretty horrible. Wow. Then they're like, oh, is, is that really me? I'm like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's good. That's a really good point. My listeners need this. I need this. This is awesome. Okay. Well, do you think your bread and butter or your, I guess, gluten-free bread or lettuce wrap and <laughs> butter um, is metabolic flexibility? Because that's what I'm the most excited to talk about. Yeah, that's probably what I, I don't know, I spend most of my time doing. Um, so my research when I did my PhD was actually on uh, fine scale variation within physiologic systems, which doesn't make any sense to anybody else, probably than one person. Um, but it was looking at metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability, right? So if we take the math that we learned from heart rate variability, which is just simply a variability analysis or a mathematical technique, is there a way we could apply that to the metabolic system and get a non-invasive measure that could be done with just a metabolic heart? Right? So you wouldn't have to go to the hospital, you wouldn't have to stuff IVs in you, we wouldn't have to do fancy equipment. Maybe we could do it off of a piece of equipment that you, know, you can find at some higher-end health clubs or you could definitely, if you had the money, purchase. Right? And could we make it uh, a lower-intensity test and not like a, you know all-out ride as hard as you can on a wind gate for 20 to 30 seconds? Right? Because you know, not everyone can do that, nor some populations, especially disease populations, probably shouldn't right away. Yeah. So we can we have it be a little bit more of a low intensity test to look at what their metabolic health is. And metabolic health, I think it's really, I mean, we all know the word metabolism. So outside of just how our body utilizes fuel, basically saying, can our body use carbs more efficiently or fat more efficiently? Is yeah. That, is that really? Yeah. The... So 
Yep, so metabolic flexibility is how well on sort of the right end of the spectrum can we use carbohydrates if needed? How well on the left end of the spectrum can we use fat if needed? And then how fast can we kind of switch back and forth between those two ends? Mm -hmm. So for a disease population, so like type 2 diabetes, everybody thinks of that as a more of a, a disease of quote-unquote carbohydrate use. And definitely is. There's issues with uh, glucose use. There's issues with insulin. But what's not appreciated as much is as that disease progresses, they lose the ability to fully use carbohydrates. And they start losing the ability to actually downregulate and to use fat. So they start having issues with fatty acid oxidation. So burning of fat as a fuel. And they become very metabolically inflexible. They can't really switch all the way to use carbohydrates, and they can't really switch all the way down to, to be using fat. So they're getting scrunched from both ends of the spectrum. So they're losing that physiologic kind of dynamic range. Man, and why? what is it that's causing them? Is it the issues with insulin, or is it that's not allowing them to utilize fat as fuel? Yeah, so it's an overly simplistic explanation, but it still works. So when we look at it, we go, okay, we've got an issue with carbohydrates. But your body, again, if we go back to your body's program for survival, we do know that high levels of blood glucose is at some point very toxic. Now, most humans will never really see that because it is so tightly controlled by multiple, multiple backup systems. But if we look at a disease, right, so type 2 diabetes, we know one of the hallmarks of it is this excursion up of blood glucose. So the body says, okay, I need to get this blood glucose out. The muscle, which is the main sink for this glucose, other tissues are too, but muscle is the main one. Eh, it's not working so well, right? So we've got a, a local insulin resistance. So let's just put out more insulin, right? If we, we send it a bigger signal, it's like if I show up at your door and I start knocking, you're like, oh, my God, that nut job, I'm not answering the door, right? <laughs> but if I keep knocking louder and louder, at some point, you may actually answer the door, right? <laughs> if I make the signal high enough, you're like, okay, fine, I'll just deal with them, tell them to go away or whatever. So if we put out enough insulin, we'll kind of override some of those issues at the muscle because we've got to get it out of the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And what we see in type 2 diabetes is, you know, for people that are non-insulin dependent, their baseline level of insulin starts creeping up higher and higher and higher. What happens then is because we can think of insulin as a fuel selector switch, which I stole from Jeff Volick, that high levels of insulin in a healthy person will push them to use more carbohydrates. So if I just say two Pop-Tarts, woo, blood glucose starts going up, insulin starts going up. If we hooked you up to lab equipment at that point in a healthy person, we'll see that you actually start burning more carbohydrates, which is a good thing. So if insulin goes lower, so it's times when you're fasting where food's not coming in, that's actually pushing your body to start using more fat. But in the case of type 2 diabetes, if we have this high level of baseline insulin all the time, the body's saying, ooh, we can't downregulate and shift down to use fat because insulin is kind of pushing us more towards this carbohydrate end of the spectrum. So we start losing that ability to use fat as a fuel on the other end. 
That was such a good description. And this is what's really interesting is that say somebody says, okay, I want to do a keto diet or a high fat diet. Yeah. That crossover is horrible. I mean, even after, oh, yeah. even after three weeks of no sugar and low carbs and monitoring it and hydration and branched chain amino acids and all the hacks in the world, they still feel terrible. And so that makes so much, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So if you think about what happens with the ketogenic diet in a healthy person, I think of a ketogenic diet as even more to sort of the left end of the spectrum, right? So we're going to severely reduce carbohydrates, so usually less than 30 grams or 50 grams, right? If you start ogling bagels, you know, you're probably going to go too high over your carb allotment. Um, but we're really trying to push insulin down because in a ketogenic diet, we actually want another alternative fuel, these ketones, which are like a, a byproduct of just burning through a lot of fat. So primarily beta-hydroxybutyrate. We want them to be higher because that's going to give our brain another source of fuel. But if insulin goes up, insulin works via the liver and starts dropping levels of ketones, which is why you'll find that some people to get very ketogenic, their fat has to be super high. So they have to have this kind of raw material. And their carbs have to be pretty darn low. And protein has to be a little bit on the lower side. Right? We're trying to jam insulin as low as we possibly can to get this other alternative fuel so that our brain and our body start to feel a little bit better. And that transition in some people I've noticed is not too bad, but I've noticed in a lot of people it can be pretty hard, even if they're doing uh, what I'd say is a very good ketogenic diet, they're looking at their fluids, they're making sure they get enough electrolytes, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um and then unfortunately now you're, I don't know if you're seeing this, but I kind of see this coming back again, is that people in glycolytic type sports, or maybe CrossFit, um, are starting to try to do a ketogenic diet oh, again. Yes, which I thought I'm we like, did this. Yeah, and I remember this from like three years ago. <laughs> yes. I'd get emails from people, and I'm sure you got just tons of them that, hey, I'm doing CrossFit, it was great. I started doing a ketogenic <laughs> diet. I felt amazing for four weeks. Now, all of a sudden, I feel like dog crap, but I have no idea why. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, even, and even cyclical ketosis, even front-loading oh, and yeah. back-loading workouts with carbs, it's just it doesn't do it for that high intensity and that demand of anaerobic sport. It's just I just refuse to believe that it's a good combo, so I'm really glad that you said that. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and what you're seeing now is people's solution is a cyclic ketogenic diet. So for listeners, it's, so let's say I'm going to go do CrossFit. I'm going to have maybe some carbs before or after, right? I'm going to try to match the carbohydrate to the exercise that I'm going to do. The exercise is burning a lot of carbs. And on paper, you're like, wow, that's, you know, that's a damn good idea. Mm -hmm. But in practice, it's, it kind of falls flat because what happens in a ketogenic diet, we've got down regulation of specifically different enzymes, but the main one is what's called PDH or pyruvate dehydrogenase. And it's kind of like the gatekeeper to use carbs at the highest percentage. And it's an access issue, right? So we've got carbohydrates that are being provided, maybe not enough, um, but the body is not able to use them as well because its access is tuned mostly to fat. Um, and where we first saw this was some very elegant studies done many years ago where they said, okay, let's put everyone on a high-fat kind of ketogenic type diet and let's look at their athletic performance. Eh, wasn't really that good. So then they went and go, oh, well, glycogen is low. 
they're burning through lots of carbs during exercise. That's why performance isn't so good. Let's give them just a piss ton of carbohydrates, you know, two, three, four days before their big event. We'll make sure the glycogen is up to par, and boom, they'll have much better use of fat. They'll have enhanced metabolic flexibility. They'll be able to use carbs, and this will be great. And they saw, nope, performance really didn't go up that much. They're like, well, that's weird. So, you know, stick the old um, Bergstrom needle in, right? So do a muscle biopsy. Let's make sure carbohydrates are actually in the muscle. Yep, carbohydrates are in the muscle. But it was an access issue, right? Their body was still missing that top end, that single-digit percentage of fully using those carbohydrates. So it wasn't that they didn't have the substrate present they had downregulated some of that metabolic machinery in order to be able to fully use it to its greatest potential. Oh, that was such a good way of explaining it. That makes so much sense. Well, what's interesting is I have, I struggle with this because with clients or with, I, so for example, a client comes to me, I can tell that they have some insulin issues or blood sugar issues, and no matter what, they cannot utilize fat as fuel. So then yeah. so then, how do you know which part is just learning how to figure out the right number of carbohydrates for them or knowing it's genetic? Because I'm starting to understand, like, there really is no way to decide, like, how do I decide? Is I mean, they just have to decide themselves what feels good and what actually is getting results, but it's such a process. And so part of me is like, well, how much of it is actually genetic and how much is, of it is what we've done to our metabolism in the past? Yeah, so genetic part, I'm, I'm sure there is some component there. I don't think they understand what it is and that type of thing. Um, like if you look up the diet fit study, they tried to do some work on that and it didn't really pan out the way that they wanted. Um, what I think of in my head when I have clients that come in, I'm like, okay, so how well can they use carbohydrates? If I don't have any lab equipment and let's say I don't even have a glucometer, what would be kind of a, a field test I could do? Hmm. I could give them a boat ton of carbohydrates and see how they feel. Right, so I'll say, okay, have oatmeal or rice or whatever the carbohydrate they'll eat, uh, kind of in isolation. Let's say one day for breakfast, and then just monitor how you feel afterwards. Would you say like you know, fifty grams carbohydrates? I usually start with like forty. Okay, but yeah, I'll go up to even eighty sometimes. Okay, um, and then I'll say just it, keep a journal and write how you feel each half hour. Check in, do a one to ten scale. If an hour later you feel like you want to, you know, pass out underneath the plant in your living room and take a nap, <laughs> eh. We'll, we'll infer that you're probably not handling them real well, right? Yeah. Just a field test. On the other end, okay, so what would be a field test for fat use? Mm. Hmm, approximately how long can you go when you're awake without any food? That will push insulin levels down. If you feel okay for, let's say, 10, 12 hours, you're probably okay at using fat. Again, these are, are rough approximations without any equipment. Um, if you tell me that, okay, it's been four hours and I'm going to gnaw my arm off and I'm feeling horrible. Yeah, you probably can't really shift quite so well to use fat. Um, and then if you go back to that part I said about the PDH enzyme, that what's fascinating is if we have people do a period of intermittent fasting, which has now become all popular again, but just a period of time where you're just not consuming any food. So let's say hypothetically Monday... You just fast for 24 hours, 
And then Tuesday, you've got uh, two Metcons you're going to do that day, and you're going to give you 300 grams of carbohydrates. Well, we find then because it's such a short period of time and because muscle glycogen is really only depleted by muscular work. So if Monday was an off day for you and we did a muscle biopsy on Tuesday, most of your glycogen is still going to be present. Your liver glycogen will go down because of the fast, but muscle glycogen won't be tapped that much. So we could give you a whole bunch of carbs then on Tuesday, and you don't really have any sort of access issues. So what I do to, to get around it with clients is I'll say, okay, let's progressively have you do your recovery day, maybe one day a week, uh, work up to a 19 to 24-hour fast, just do some you know super easy runs or walk or whatever. I'm going to push insulin as low as I possibly can. Insulin will kind of reach this bottom of the curve at about 18 hours. And that's this big metabolic hammer to push you to try to use more fat as a fuel. Plus, I automatically cut out you know, a day's worth of calories, right? Because calories do matter. And I don't have any changes, as far as we're aware of, in the PDH enzyme in terms of access to carbohydrates the next day. Hmm. So the next day, you could go to a gym. We'll give you more carbs. Muscle glycogen is not really all that depleted anyway, and you could do a more intense session, and we'll back to trying to get you to use carbs a little bit more effectively. I love it. This is so good. And so, okay, so some tools outside of just kind of timing and shifting uh, for somebody that did eat the 40 grams or 80 grams and then they just want yeah. to pass out near the pot, yeah. <laughs> which I've experienced before. Um, yeah. I did not realize how messed up my body was until I, until I started doing these kinds of tests. So one thing, like just a simple, obviously, okay, we know that we don't do well with high carbohydrates, but it doesn't, or not even high carbohydrates with 40 grams, but I still want to be able to utilize them without feeling exhausted. So sure. um, I utilize berberine a lot and even yeah. something as simple as cinnamon. Do you have, do you have any other tips and tricks for something? You know, I do love yeah, yeah. high intensity exercise, obviously to help yes. with insulin receptors. What other tips do you like? Yeah. So I, so on the, on the berberine one, there, there's some pretty good data that berberine is very effective, right? Um, it's um, maybe as effective as, as some drugs um, for that, metformin being the main one, which has been around for a long time, relatively safe. Again, it's still a prescription drug. Um, I do wonder about what's called glucose disposal agents, though. Um, and, and part of this I've wondered about for quite a while. And part of this, again, was sparked by a, a conversation I had with Dr. Brian Walsh, is that if the cell is saying, hey, man, I don't want any more carbohydrates, right? So I'm going to change my insulin level. I'm going to become kind of insulin resistant. Do I really want to try to override that and throw more carbohydrates in there? And the analogy he used, which I love, is that if you've got like this huge raging party at your house, do you really want to let a bunch more people into your house? It may kind of get destroyed. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... I wonder about that. I don't, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer per se, um, but we do know that it, those things will drop um, blood glucose levels in the blood. Um, so from a blood glucose standpoint, that appears to be good. Um, I guess my preference is just looking at overall movement. Yeah. So pedometers, right? So now people have Apple watches, things like that. We know that glucose can be made more efficient by primarily two mechanisms. There's insulin-mediated, and there's actually non-insulin-mediated uptake. 
So just if you're fasting, insulin levels are lower, just muscle contraction in and of itself can pull glucose right directly out of the bloodstream independent of insulin. So by walking, more movement, I may say, hey, try to get 8,000 steps a day, 10,000, just a little bit more than wherever they were at. I don't think there's a magical number to hit per se. And then on the more insulin-related side, I think, okay, so when is a time I could give them carbohydrates where their body is probably, one, able to handle them better, and two, more sensitive to them? And you come up with, most likely, right after training, yeah. right? So during training, as you know, a lot of the counter-regulatory hormones will be elevated. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, those all go up which helps your body handle uh, glucose a little bit better, right? Because there's stress hormones. Mm -hmm. um, and then post, we just had all that nice muscle contraction. You've got what's called translocation of GLUT4 to the membrane, so it's better able to pull out glucose. So I'll initially give people a fair amount of carbohydrates post-intense exercise and see how they feel and what they report. Mm -hmm. And most people will report they feel pretty good at that point and can handle maybe 40, 80 grams or whatever. Um, there's some interesting studies on diabetics where if they look at the disease directly after strength training, some people may be able to handle carbohydrates pretty normally or they couldn't at other times during the day. So that's the, the first thing I'll do. And then I'll also look at lifestyle and overall stress. Yeah. So if they have a glucometer, I'll try to get them to do some readings first thing in the morning. The real big ones are stress and then sleep. Like sleep will massively change resting blood glucose within one night of horrible sleep. Um, so the people I find that have the hardest time with it are usually high stress, HRV scores are not super great, they may be quite active, they may not be, but they're usually sleeping five or six hours a night. And once they start sleeping more, we kind of get them to downregulate a little bit better, get a little bit more parasympathetic, you know, take a walk, you know, lock yourself in a float chamber, you know, do whatever to try to downregulate more, sleep more, and then everything starts to kind of start moving in a much better direction at that point. Those are so great. And then on the opposite spectrum with the fat and really not feeling like they can go two hours without eating, like they're just going to kill somebody. I get that yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. You know, it's almost this punishment thing. Like, you know, I have to get through this horrible first or second week and maybe I'll adjust. But what are yeah. ways for them to, I mean, and this is probably, I don't know if you utilize you know, uh, exogenous ketones at all or, you know, other I have, tips. Yeah. yeah. So what are some ways to help people really feel, cause I'm, I do really, really great with fat and I just have always felt good. Nice. With, I just got lucky, I think with that. So, but there's so many people that come and they just, you know, that feeling of, oh my God, this is, this is hell. <laughs> so yeah. um, how do you, is it just a, uh, giving them the right nutrients and minerals? Like you talked about with like a true good keto diet, even if it's not keto, what is right. a way for them to help better utilize fat? Yeah, so I would say if we assume that their stress is probably relatively manageable and they're not just, you know, chronically under-eating and that type of thing. Um, like years ago, I, I, the first book I read on this was Eat, Stop, Eat by Brad Pilon, which was awesome. And at the time, I'm like fasting. Ah, this is a horrible. It's a horrible idea. All the muscle is going to fall off of me. You know, I know about muscle protein synthesis and 
<clears throat> took me probably about eight months of just reading through all the research because he compiled all of it and great guy did a good job but I'm like no I gotta go read the research for myself yeah and I remember being in Arizona and I'm like okay today I'm gonna do a fast and I was one of those people who you know had to eat every two to three hours which I had spent the previous four years training myself to do because I was in college I started and I was six foot three and weighed 156 pounds so I was a an eel-shaped rake, to, to say it, on, on a good day. So I'm like, I probably just need to eat more and read some of John Barrard's early stuff and went, oh, yeah, I just need to eat more. So it's been four years, you know, eating every two to three hours, and, you know, I got up to, like, 185, 190. And so the fasting thing kind of rolls around, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try it. So I'm in Arizona. I was at some training, and I didn't eat breakfast doing some work. I made it till like one that afternoon and I just felt horrible, just miserable. I couldn't focus, couldn't concentrate. And I ran across the street, you know, Chinese buffet for about an hour and a half, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which no. I'm like, huh, fasting is horrible. I knew it was a horrible idea. Um, <laughs> and I realized one day I'm like, well, wait a minute. Well, what am I doing here? I'm like, if, if I, every waking hour for the past four ish years, every two to three hours I've been eating, that would be like you coming to my gym and saying, okay, I've never deadlifted a day in my life. Let's just put 405 on the bar. And if you can't do it, I'm just going to yell at you to keep trying harder, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, unless you're Andy Bolton in high school, it's just not going to happen, right? So what do you do? You just, you know, bring it down to 135, 95, the bar, whatever, right? You just scale it back to whatever your current capacity is. So I went, oh, so stupid. So I'm like, okay. Next Monday, what if I just go for two hours? And then what if the following Monday, I just add two hours to that, right? So I did that just one day a week, added about two to four hours each week. And within six to eight weeks, I could do, you know, 19 to 24 hours. And it wasn't really that bad. Um, so I've done that with just a whole bunch of clients uh, since then. And most people can make 19 to 24 hours if they're just kind of progressive about it. And that's only doing it once a week. You don't have to do it every day of the week. That gets to be a little bit too much. Um, so I found that that was the most useful if you've got about two months just to kind of ease into it. If for whatever reason you say, okay, I, I have to do this in a very short period of time, you could make an argument of using some MCT and some exogenous ketones and things like that, ketone salts, BHB, as kind of uh, a way to kind of bridge your fasting. Um, and I have done that with a few people, and it does work. Mm -hmm. um, mechanisms are a little bit different. You can get into different um, adaptions and that kind of stuff. But if someone is hell-bent on doing it anyway, I will have them do that route. Although I do like a little bit more kind of progressive nature if they've got about two months to, to kind of work into it. I think that's perfect. And I'm going to get that book. You said it was called Eat Fast. Yeah, it's called cool. Eat, Eat, Stop, Eat. Eat. Yeah, it's... It's very good. And, you know, his thing was, and I, I generally agree with, is take one day a week and do probably a 19 to 24-hour fast. And that's, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of different, there's 16-8, there's all sorts of different protocols now for fasting. <clears throat> that's probably the main one I use the most. Um, I have had clients do the other ones. Usually it's just because they come to me already doing that and they liked it. Mm -hmm. So I may not change it or you know, I've got some that may skip breakfast, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or things of that nature. Um, but I think I, I like it because it's easier. Um, so if you eat Sunday night with your family and the next meal you would have once you're adapted to it 
I kind of added the the prolonged adaptation period to it. Uh, your next meal would be with your family Monday night. Mm. So it it makes a lot of um, social sense also because it's and I've done this and it's it's weird to go out and stare at people eating. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's just. Yeah, it feels weird, you know, and I'm I'm a nut job, so I'll do it once in a while, but the average person's probably not gonna do that. And the waiter's like, Are you sure? You know how how many yeah. times they ask you, like, Are you sure? <laughs> yes, are I'm sure, sure stop asking me. They're like, Aren't you hungry? And I'm like, Well, kind of, but and what are you doing again? <laughs> you know? Yes, totally. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so cool. You miss a lot of that. It makes it just easier. Because you know, I work, you, yeah, you go somewhere else, you take a log for lunch, you know, it's not as socially as big of a deal I found. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a great point. Well, this is, gosh, I know I, I went over on your time and this is no so fantastic. I always ask my guests, uh, guests one question and it's okay. If you don't know, I haven't had great success, but I want you to help me figure it out and I can help you figure it out. Do you have a spirit animal? A spirit animal. Ooh. <laughs> Could it be a kiteboarder? That's not an animal. Though, is it? <laughs> Do you kiteboard? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so rad. I actually I got like hooked in on somebody's kiteboard and experienced it when I was in Costa Rica. And, oh, wow. And I loved it. No, was it Costa Rica? Is Costa Rica windy enough or was it There's only one place in Costa Rica. So it could have been. Oh, you know what? It was Dominican Republic. That's totally oh, where yeah. it was. Cabarete? Yep, Cabarete. Oh, uh, I love Cabarete. Uh, <laughs> I need to do it though like for real just on my own. It looks so fun. Oh, you got to go. It's it's I've been doing it for, man, 11, 12 years now. And it's, I mean, I actually reorganized my whole life so I could do it more. <laughs> oh, I love hearing that. I love when people find that thing, you know? Um, yeah. Well, shoot. I wonder what you would be. You, you might be, what's an animal that like goes in and out of the water? Uh, oh, like, uh. I can uh, visualize it. You know, the ones that kind of, or the fish that fly. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like the flying fish. Is that what it's called? <laughs> it's a super creative name. Uh, um, I always thought dolphin would be pretty cool. I have on my list yet to uh, to kiteboard with dolphins underneath. That's that's uh, on my list to do at some point yet. Where would you do, where would you do that at? They've been in places where I've been. So I've been to like El Cuyo, Mexico. Okay. Um, but it's just never lined up where I've been riding and they're like right next to me. So it, it, it'll happen at some point. It will. My, um, you know, I, on my list is, um, I'm going to Alaska pretty soon to, oh, nice. to see whales, but I really, I'm going to, uh, I have to scuba dive or snorkel with a whale before I die. I just, Oh, that would be fun. Oh, I yeah. just, Are you going deep sea fishing in Alaska? You know, I'm actually doing this like little small, a 10 person fishing boat kind of cruise all through oh, cool. Prince William Sound, if you're familiar oh, with that. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And so it's so cool because it's um, the first week of June where the days are literally all day. So we have, yeah, we have like four, four hours of night and then it's just kayaking and hiking and uh, eating lots of good fish. Oh, fun. Yeah. We went halibut fishing up there. My uncle lives up there a couple of years ago in May and yeah, it's, it's beautiful. We were in Homer, Alaska, but uh, Alaska is beautiful in general. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Well, I'll uh, I'll keep an eye out for a flying fish, and if I can find it, I will send it your yes. way. And oh, that'd be great. <laughs> I always help. I love helping people figure out their spirit animal. So you're on Very my cool. radar. <laughs> All right, awesome. Um, so I just want to. You have the an amazing jam packed website of things to help with 
all of the things we talked about. Um, you've been doing this for so long and you have such a great way of teaching people. And I just talk to people about where they can find you on social and then also the website, um, all the great things that you offer. Yeah, so most of my stuff is through the website. It's just MikeTNelson.com. And if they go there on the main page, there's usually an offer for to get onto the newsletter. So probably about 90-ish percent of my content right now goes out through the newsletter. Uh, I think the one right in there is a, a pre-protein a interview I did with Dr. Stu Phillips. Um, but yeah, that's where most of my stuff goes through there. I also have a certification, which is uh, FlexDiet.com. I can find out information there. And then Instagram, if you want to see kiteboarding and dark beer and concert pictures, primarily is just uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. <laughs> I love it. I've been wanting to podcast with you for so long, and I'm just so grateful we got to connect. Um, thank you, Paleo FX, for making that happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we will be in touch. I would love to uh, do another podcast on the road because I think there's just so many good gems that you know and my clients and listeners are going to love. So thank you again for being on Meathead Hippie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun, and I, I loved all the questions, too. So it was a good time. Yay. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.